Let us pray. Lord God, wherever these words are empty, help us to ignore them. And whenever and wherever your spirit fills them with power, may they take note. In the name of your Son, amen. God gave humanity to Jesus. And God gave Jesus to humanity so that Jesus could give humanity to God. This is the fullness of the gift. As the body of Jesus, we are the gift that God is giving to God out of joy. Can you imagine, in an eternity beyond us, God said to God, You know what you would love? And then smiled. This is where we ended last week. And it's this truth Jesus continues to circle around in today's lesson. We are the gift of God unto God, drawn into a communion that is above and beyond us, but in which we are destined to play a part. This is at first a kind of challenging or threatening truth. Am I worthy to be a gift to God? Am I what God wants? What does one do as a gift? How does one be? It's such an ethereal mystery. It connects with so little of the actual lives that we live. It's like one of those messages that you hear playing on the B side of a 78 when you spin it backwards. It's like Pink Floyd or something like that. It's different than that because it's good news, but it feels like a secret that not everyone knows. We are a gift from God unto God. What? (laughs) I want to spend some time today fleshing out a little bit what difference it should make for us that Jesus is giving humanity to God. But before we can tease out the question of what do we do with ourselves as a gift... There's a prior question that I at least want to throw out there, and then we'll get to that challenge. That question is, what does God intend to do with the gift? This is a question that comes more from philosophy than from the Bible, but strictly speaking, God doesn't need anything or anyone. This actually did pose a bit of a problem for some ancient philosophers. If we suppose that God doesn't need anything, is perfectly self-sufficient, fully happy and subsisting entirely and fully without reference to anything else, then what gives? Look around you. Why bother with the whole mess of creation? I have the thick German accent of one of my theology professors running in the back of my head on this question. He said, this is a very interesting question, and more people should contemplate it in the modern period. Why is there something rather than nothing? (laughs) Making up for some missed COVID and first grade field trips, we've been to the zoo and the aquarium in the last three weeks, so maybe I've just got creatures on the mind. For example, did you know that at any one moment, 
According to the Smithsonian, scientists estimate that there are approximately 10 quintillion, that's 10 with 18 zeros following, 10 quintillion insects alive on the planet. And that's just one kind of animal. And I know that's a very untechnical way of talking about that. Somebody out there is like, it's a phylum, dude. Like, and I know that. Okay, I, I don't really know what I'm talking about. But 10 quintillion insects, what for? And again, I know somebody's there thinking like, yeah, but we know what for. We can articulate how exactly, at least many of them, how do they fit into their food chains? And that kind of answers what for. But why are there insects at all? And the answer is probably they're for the birds, duh. And okay, fine, but why birds? What are the birds for? And your answer would be they're for the bigger birds to eat them or whatever. But we could go on back and forth with this game. We would go all the way back and eventually we would get to the real point of the question, which is that the movement from zero things to one is perhaps the most astonishing and puzzling thing of all. God was under no compulsion or necessity to create. It didn't have to happen. There's a kind of superfluity to the whole thing. It's all excess. It didn't have to happen. The philosophers were puzzled about this, but the theologians weren't. At least, not the Christian ones. St. Athanasius in the 3rd century, near the beginning of his book on the Incarnation, draws on this philosophical idea, and he then characterizes the act of creation as, yes, totally unnecessary, but also not surprising, given the source. He basically says it's the kind of thing that love, in all of her wisdom, would enjoy doing, or that wisdom out of her joy would love to share, or that joy, because she loves, would do well. Modern philosophers often think about God as a cosmic watchmaker or tinkerer, the inventor who sets up all of the gears and widgets, winds up the perfectly tuned machine, and then lets go. Most of the ancients would recognize this immediately as a rather meager and impoverished picture. When they sought examples of God, they looked instead to the artist. The one who creates things that are, as material, totally useless. I always think about Oscar Wilde when I think about this. His protagonists were like this, totally useless human beings. They were all overwrought and they were smug, but at least they knew that the thing you do with beauty is absolutely nothing. When you look at a painting, you should ask the question, what is this for? But you probably shouldn't try to answer it. It isn't for anything, but it is above usefulness, not below it. It maybe is just a reminder that man does not live on bread alone. We are this kind of gift, the painting of God 
that God wanted. And from our end, this is a kind of reminder of the greatness of our need. We live in reference to that desire. We thirst for a drink that somehow surpasses itself, for food that feeds without the eating, or for eating that satisfies without the bread, for a communion that's deeper than words, or for a word that can cross over our boundaries. We live as a moment in God's story, not the other way around. But on God's side, it's, it's like, why did God create us? It just felt right. God was happy and it happened. <laughs> it was good and it was good and it was very good. And that's all. And here, then, is the beginning of a response to the challenge that we started with. How do you be the painting of God that God wanted? Thomas Aquinas would say that you should just be as the kind of thing that you are. Figure out what you are, and then be that. That's enough. Figure out what sorts of things that things like you do, and then do them. And for a professional hand wringer like me, it's really easy to get all wrapped around the axle over whether I'm perfectly understanding every concept, or excellently balancing every obligation, or whether I'm doing exactly what God would have me do at any given moment. But as the 16th century Carmelite priest St. John of the Cross said, at the end of all our days, we will be judged by love alone. Love is the kind of thing that things of your kind do. Love made you to love. Just do that. At every juncture, ask yourself, what would be the most loving thing here? And then do it. When I first heard that line, it was incredibly freeing for me. Just discover what you love and then do it. And if you find it hard to look inside yourself and figure out what you really love or whatever, which is my problem mainly, instead just discover what you have to do <laughs> and then do that. And I can't tell you what that looks like for you. I can tell you what it looks like for me. I love to read. I love a good conversation. I love to cook. Sex is pretty good. I enjoy working and building things. It's also really therapeutic for me to find things that are dirty and then to scrub them clean so that I can watch the surface beneath just like pop. I derive probably an inordinate pleasure from like spraying down the counter at the end of the day and then wiping it clean. I love that. I love watching my children grow and ask questions that I don't know the answers to. I love that too. But for all of those things, I think the thing that comes closest to love are those things that I have to do whether or not I enjoy them. I have to wake up early and get my family ready and get to work on time. I have to have a job 
I have to let go of some of the ideals I had when I was a teenager. I have to clean the house before a company comes over. And I think the difference is I do those things, but I don't do them for me. For God, seeing humans be human for one another is among the purest of pleasures. So do that. But it would be fair for you to complain at this point that all of this is a little bit vague. It would also be fair to note that Christians don't gather together primarily for philosophy lessons. We came here to eat, after all. So to put a little more flesh on the bone, and sorry, not sorry for that choice of words, Jesus says that the bread he gives for the life of the world is his flesh, and that unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He goes on to say that his flesh is food that is true food, and his blood true drink. And it's by eating and drinking the flesh and blood that we are held in the very life of God. I don't have a lot of commentary on this one. It's sitting right there. When I was in college, the church I attended offered daily prayer and communion, and I would go, and always at the front, every day, there was a retired professor who, he was probably in his late 70s or early 80s, and every day as the elements were being blessed, he would hold out his hand, like fully stretched, all the way, he had a cane, so he could only use one hand, but he would stretch his hand all the way out like a child does, fingers spread, the whole thing. I think that's what it looks like. I think that the, that's what this looks like. It also looks like the one question I have heard my children ask more often than any other question in their whole life. Daddy, can I have a snack? It's like that, only bigger and closer. When the ancient Christians looked for an image of God, although they also used the image of the artist that we talked about. The most striking image, which I, I read in Thomas Aquinas, but it predates him by centuries. The most striking image is of God as a pelican. Because there was an ancient legend that the pelican mother, when there wasn't enough food for her young, would actually wound herself and allow her, chi her chicks to drink her blood to survive. I don't know if that's actually, like, factually true or not, but this looks like that. And I don't know what to do with it. But he really does say, this is my body, this is my blood, take, eat, drink. The disciples don't know what to do with it either. Uh, one verse after where we stopped for today, their response to Jesus saying this is, this is a hard teaching. <laughs> Who can accept it? But in a way that I can't explain to you, God is real and alive for the life of the world through this meal. This is how we are being given to God in this meal, 
And here I'm going to take us one step further. And to be fully honest, I'm still feeling this one out. It's not original to me, but I'm still feeling it out a bit. We are being given to God in this meal. I also think it's possible that we are being given to the world as this meal. As in, in the same way that Jesus feeds us the life of God, so we bring God and Jesus to the world, not only by spreading and celebrating worship through the Eucharist, which I think is true, we do that and we should, but also by becoming a kind of Eucharistic celebration with our lives. God is spreading the feast, and we are the grain that is being planted. So after the pattern of this meal, we will bring life to the world. Luke relates that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did likewise with the cup. Take, bless, break, give. I'm going to offer to you that what Jesus does with the bread and wine, which is the same thing Jesus did with his body, take, bless, break, give. This is what our work and our play and our prayer and our time together with others should look like. So I'm going to talk briefly about each of those. First, take. In one of his chapters in Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton says that the main difference between Christian and Buddhist paintings of the faithful is that the Christian saint always has her eyes open. Both Christianity and Judaism teach us to deny ourselves, but self-denial means something very different for each. The Buddhist denies their experience in order to clarify their inner identity, Chesterton says, so their eyes are always closed, looking inward, ignoring what's in front of them. But the Christian does the opposite. The Christian denies their inner self, in order to clarify their experience. Self-denial for the Christian is about putting our desires in order so that we can be tenaciously and gently and above all truly present to God and to the world. It's about learning to accept a gift that comes from outside yourself. I don't know enough about Buddhism or the Eastern or Eastern culture to know whether Chesterton's contrast is accurate. I don't know and I don't want to speak to that. But he has heard a true thing, I think, about the gift we receive as Christians. God works in us to accomplish the gift, but fundamentally it comes from outside us. So you have to be able to receive. This is, I think, why Christians for a long time have been students of science and of academic study. And they've pursued medicine and service and law and politics. And they've pursued work serving other people directly 
because that's a way of receiving the world and offering it back to God. So maybe the big takeaway is read the news. <laughs> Get to know your neighbors. Pursue those things, those places where Christians are listening to what the world around us is saying. Before passing judgment, learn to listen. Because we have to be able to receive. With our eyes and our ears open for a gift. Like that. Second. Bless. When we have received, bless. Bless God. If we're being cared for by God, then we should bless God. I'm not a very effusive person, and I know some people in my life who are effusive, and their habits of blessing the Lord are a bit over the top. And that's okay. We don't all have to be the same. But I've been convicted and challenged, especially by my father and mother-in-law, for whom the phrase, praise the Lord, buzzes around their stories and conversation like a fruit fly. Praise the Lord. So I've been inspired by that. I know that sounds silly, except I'm a little bit stiff. And again, I'm not very emotive. And so what comes out is this quiet and awkward, thanks be to God. <laughs> But it's not only about directing thanks to God, although that is, I think, the main thing. It also means directing blessing toward the world. And whatever's in front of you, if you do a thing well, bless yourself and bless the work. To do less than that is ingratitude to the God who made you. Again, I've got creatures on the mind. When we were at the aquarium, Michael went to every single tank. He's my three-year-old. He went to every single tank, and he said, look at that one. Look at that one. Look at that one. It was like 300 times he said, look at that one throughout the course of the day. We should look at the world, and even people with whom we disagree, ready to have that kind of joy and blessing in response. And I think Christians often miss this, and it creates a bad name. In my classroom, we read a lot of books by non-Christians, and even some by openly atheist writers. And the perspective I try to help my students toward is, as we read in Ephesians today, that anything good, right, or true comes from the light. We should expect to be able to bless things, or at least aspects of them, no matter what the source is. We should be in the habit of looking for things to praise rather than things to complain about or critique. That doesn't come very easy for me, but it's important. Third, break. This one does come pretty easy to me, breaking things. I'm kidding. I think we talked about this two weeks ago. Christians, in order to genuinely receive the traditions of the faith, always have to break them, at least to a certain extent. Jesus didn't hand a full loaf to every person at the table, and he didn't hand one loaf around and tell everybody to just break off what you want. When you're sharing a thing in common, you need to think about how it will be received. 
So two weeks ago, we talked about how we, in our moment, and in ways that are intellectually serious today, can receive our wallets as a gift in God's economy and use our wealth realistically to express and further God's desire for dignified work and environmental health. And I suggested to you that the thing we should do in pursuing that is receive our traditions thinking on, about those things and then break them so they're going to work for us today. We're always tweaking the family recipe. And that's good. That's a good thing. This is also how good art happens. You receive and then you break. And probably most jobs are done in this way. You have to receive what's handed down for you, but you also have to make it yours. I tell my students that they need to master all of the rules of grammar so that it will mean something when they break them. And remember, Jesus did this not with grammar, but with the body. If you read the New Testament, including what we read today in Ephesians, the activity most often extolled in the New Testament is singing. In the Christian imagination, our bodies are not primarily about work or sex or battle or fear. And of course, if you study evolutionary biology or anthropology, so much of the life of our bodies is conditioned by those things. And I think that's, all, that's true. It is conditioned by those things. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to deny any of that. But our bodies are really about music. That's what they're for. That doesn't mean that you have to sing well in order to be a good person, of course. Because, of course, you could hum. That'd be fine. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. The things that you have received and blessed, how are you going to prepare them for sharing? To whom is it going and what do they need? Take what you have and break it and give it. And so then that brings us, lastly, take, bless, break, give. God is giving life to the world through the body of Jesus, which is this meal. But God is also giving the world the life of the church that is gathered around this table. I can't tell you what it is that you have to give, but be on the lookout in your life for ways that God is bringing death back to life and participate in any way that you can. Maybe it's redoubling efforts to buy fair trade or to avoid practices of overconsumption and waste. Maybe it's continuing to reapproach conversations around race looking for ways in your own life to promote justice and equity, whether in your workplace or, and I hate to keep coming back to this, but I'm going to come back to it, where you spend your money really matters. We live in a racially segregated region, and that is a sickness. But life looks like justice. And justice and life both look like communities that cross those kinds of boundaries. There's no other way to say that. It matters. 
Or maybe there are relationships in your life that have been broken for a long time and are finally ready for some fresh air and honest confession. Or maybe it's reorganizing your daily routine so that you are more available to help someone, an acquaintance, or a ministry. Whatever it is, you need to keep your eyes open and your hands outstretched. And when you find whatever that is, break it and give it for the life of another. Because God is giving out gifts out of joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.